Of course, you have to make money for the corporation, but how you do that matters. We would totally agree that our responsibility is to our shareholders, but that responsibility can not actually be fulfilled without taking care of many other stakeholders. There's an expectation that we're looking at all stakeholders, all groups, employees, dealers, suppliers, communities in which we live and work. And I believe you have to create cultures that have an enormous focus on purpose. And you have to create environments where people feel inspired to come to work. Yeah, I think companies can do quite a bit to address social problems. And every company needs to figure out what are the societal issues that are connected to your purpose as a company? I firmly believe that CEOs have a role to play in making the world a better place. Leadership Next is powered by the folks at Deloitte, who, like me, are super focused on how CEOs can lead in the context of disruption and devolving societal expectations. Welcome to Leadership Next. I'm Alan Murray. And I'm Ellen McGirt. And Ellen, when we started this podcast back in February, there was no way we could have imagined what kind of year this was going to be. A, a year really like no other in my lifetime. No way at all. Shortly after launching the podcast, we had a global business shutdown unlike anything we've seen before in our lifetimes. Today, the governors of New York, Illinois, and Connecticut joined California and Pennsylvania, shutting down most businesses. Businesses across the country forced to shut their doors, already leading to absolutely stunning increases on unemployment claims. Today, we're bringing it to 100% of the workforce uh, must stay home. And then in the wake of that, this amazingly rapid shift to work from home and mm -hmm. shopping online, mm -hmm. which forced a kind of head-spinning acceleration of digital transformation and changes that would normally have taken years were happening in months or even weeks. And then, just as we were in the vortex of all that change, the George Floyd murder happened. More protests and uprisings are expected in Minnesota and across the country this weekend over the death of George Floyd. And while it certainly wasn't the first time a black man had been killed by a police officer, there was something about this moment, perhaps the graphic nature of the video and the raw emotional state that had already been caused by the pandemic shutdown that caused the world to respond and really shake the business world in a way it hadn't been shaken before. Yeah, so true. But I really want to start this review of the year where we started mm -hmm. with a sense that even before the pandemic hit, that business was changing and that business leaders were increasingly coming to the conclusion that they had to do a better job, not just satisfying the demands of their shareholders, but also serving the needs of society. And you heard some of those voices at the top of the show. Ginny Rometty of IBM, Emmanuel Faber of Danone, Mary Barra of GM. Bill McDermott of ServiceNow, Roger Ferguson of TIAA, John Donahoe of Nike, and Chip Berg of Levi's. That was really the core that got us started in this. And the extraordinary thing is that core stayed true throughout the entire season. Yeah. And and more than that, because I and I want to go to uh, we're going to bring in uh, Joe Yukazoglu, the CEO of Deloitte, who has been our sponsor on this and our 
our champion, and I want to get him to talk about this, but what amazed me, I mean, if you had asked me in March when the pandemic hit and we saw the economy headed south, if you had asked me whether stakeholder capitalism was going to continue to be a huge part of the conversation, I probably would have guessed no. I would have thought companies would have hunkered down, looked at their bottom line, say the numbers are getting bad. I really have to focus on this short-term results problem. But in fact, the opposite happened, which is one of the big surprises this year. And Joe, let me bring you in there to talk about this and tell us why you think that happened. Alan, I'm reflecting back on the very first time we got together in your studio, which was literally just about a week before the pandemic hit the US in full force. And we couldn't have possibly known that the nine months over which this series has run would coincide with this unprecedented period in society. So it wasn't that many months ago that society was literally turned on its head. Despite all the challenges and the very dire public health situation, the economy has actually held up better than anyone could have expected. And I do think that's a reflection of the way in which the business community has stepped up and helped lead society through this you know, very difficult period of time. And what you've been able to catalog in real time here through the podcasts has been the way in which business leaders have helped lead society and demonstrate the very best of business and a real life manifestation of stakeholder capitalism. I will tell you, as, as I reflect back on the season and we kept asking the question, is this real? Can you be stakeholder focused when you're in the middle of a crisis? And we kept hearing the same drumbeat over and over again, that the opportunity to build back better, whatever that meant for them, whether it meant new products and services or just the way they conducted business in the world, seemed to be true. This has been a huge growth opportunity for all of us as leaders. Usually these difficult and challenging circumstances are, are, are where you grow the most. And I, I do think that this period has debunked the myth of this invincible CEO that sits in a corner right. office, is all-knowing, issues edicts. You've heard over the course of these interviews repeatedly words like empathy, uh, vulnerability, so true. doing more listening before speaking and demonstrating that leadership in a world that is this complex requires a very different set of attributes. Yeah, that's so true. I, I, I want to talk about the pharmaceutical companies for a minute, because to me, that's one of the most interesting parts of the 2020 story. I mean, this is, and Joe, I don't want to insult anybody who might be a client of yours here, but this was the most disliked industry of industries. <laughs> and then the pandemic hit, and it was almost like these companies had a purpose thrust upon them. And we had these fascinating conversations with uh, Vas Narasimhan, the CEO of Novartis, or Paul Hudson, the CEO of Sanofi, or Nubar Afayan of Flagship Pioneering, who created the company Moderna that's going to be one of the first to markets with a vaccine. And each of them talked about the transformational nature that that purpose of fighting the virus had given their companies. It was really an amazing lesson in how to activate a business. We have additional programs where we are purely computationally designing antibodies against the virus in a time frame that previously used to take six, nine months. We're doing these in one or two days, and we've generated hundreds and hundreds of these antibodies that are 
being pursued right now. I'm not sure how it would feel to be completely disconnected from working on solutions right now. You know, it's I'm privileged to to be leading an organization that is got 10,000 people in our vaccines group who are right now working seven days a week to try and bring something to help, you know, the entire planet. We want a culture that's inspired, curious and unbossed. And we want leaders who can navigate complexity, who move from a world where expertise mattered and knowing mattered to one where you have comfort navigating in ambiguity. And this has been the ultimate test case. Well, hasn't it been beautiful to see the entire industry come together and redefine the competition mm. as the virus, not each other? Yes, Paul Hudson made that point beautifully. This is a race that we're happy to lose, particularly with COVID-19, because everybody needs to win. All of the vaccine makers holding you know, themselves to very high standards need to be able to be a success because the billions of doses needed to protect the planet is so huge yeah. that it's not a one company race. And I know my CEO colleagues, I can tell you there is, it's like a hotline to each other of how can we help, what do you need? Uh, what can we do? You know, it is as close as we'll ever get at our level to being sharing a common purpose. If you look at this through a broader lens, we have this ongoing debate in society as to the role of technology. And many of us, I know you and I have talked about this frequently, that, you know, that there is so much promise for technology to be the catalyst for solving some of humanity's greatest challenges. And yet way too often, what dominates the headlines are the negatives and the fears. And in my mind, the real MVP of the last nine months has been tech. It's so true. And Ellen, I think we should stick with this theme for a little bit because that's one of the other mind-boggling things about 2020. I mean, we all talked before the pandemic hit about the rapid pace of technological change, but that pace increased fourfold, fivefold, sixfold. I mean, the number of times that somebody said on this broadcast, we did things in two weeks or two months that would have taken us five years. When we were talking before about what changes the pandemic has accelerated, 3D printing is clearly one of them. Very early, we realized that in many hospitals, in many medical centers, they were missing key critical parts. And since the pandemic started, we have produced more than 4 million parts using 3D printers. And what this shows is really the value that this technology has, because these are parts that were designed, that were built, were distributed in a matter of weeks. If we had followed the traditional processes, it would have taken months to get this done. That was Enrique Lores, and he is the head of HP. Michelle Goss, the CEO of Kohl's, also talked about tech innovation and all sorts of new ideas for reaching new customers that were driven by the pandemic. So we have a very strong digital business now that's been critically important during the pandemic. And that's both front of house and back of house. So back of house, we use our stores to fulfill a lot of digital orders. And increasingly important is the front of house capability. So with customers ordering online but wanting their product quickly, we can deliver it to them from our stores within an hour or two. And curbside, which we stood up the early part of the pandemic, in fact, the team developed and launched that within two weeks of our stores being closed. 
Sure, the rapid pace of transformation is impressive, but it's practically table stakes at this point. Either adopt digital technology or go the way of the dinosaurs, or so says Tom Siebel, CEO of C3.ai. It is a fact that the last 20 years in the Fortune 500, we are seeing a mass extinction event. 52% of the companies that were on the Fortune 500 list in January 2000, you know, they no longer exist. Okay, they've been, they've gone out of business, they've merged, they've been acquired. I mean, where is Westinghouse? Where is Kodak? Where is Toys R Us? I mean, it's almost inconceivable that these companies are gone, but they are gone. Have we ever seen anything like this before? Anything that's this extensive, this big, and this fast? Well, the closest thing would be the Industrial Revolution. You know, according to McKinsey Global Institute, this digital transformation or post-industrial society is happening at, you know, 100 times the speed of the Industrial Revolution with 30 times the change. So this is 3,000 times more impact than the Industrial Revolution. This is a big global event and it is existential. Can we switch gears a little bit? Because the other thing that I've been really moved by as the season has gone on is how technology and the common enemy of the virus, and of course, social justice, has restored perhaps the most basic building block of leadership, which is the conversation between human beings. The George Floyd shooting, for example, we heard so many stories about really raw, emotional, personal, unprecedented conversations CEOs were having with their black employees, many of whom they knew quite well until they realized that they didn't know them quite well. And somehow these conversations were made so much more intimate through the pain of social distance and COVID test, and knowing in part that the barriers that they were learning that their Black employees had faced on their own leadership journeys were being amplified dramatically in their families and in the communities that they cared about because of the pandemic. Alan, I think one of my favorite conversations, although it's hard to pick just one, was with uh, Cisco CEO Chuck Robbins. I so agree. Yeah. He really showed up for that moment. And I think even he was taken by surprise at just how raw and intimate and life-changing these conversations were. Almost to a person, every one of my leadership team, as they were speaking to this community, had tears in their eyes because there was so much that we learned about their experience. And What that led us to was kicking off a 100-day sprint around trying to actually go tackle a lot of these issues. We've been doing lots of the same things other companies have been doing over the last several years. We've we've really increased our recruiting for our college programs from historically black college and university system, as a lot of companies have done. But I think there's, there's an awful lot more that we can do, and we will get much more aggressive as a result of probably the last month, which which is a good thing. Beth Ford was also really honest about how difficult it was to hear Black employees share their experiences. It was painful. I mean, absolutely painful. Because I don't know, here I was, I just said, boy, we all fear for our children. But I don't know what it must feel like to be afraid to have your kid go out to go biking. I can't have my kid go out on the bike because what happens if they get stopped? Yeah. I mean, it it just is so beyond the pale. Yeah. Joe, I'm sure you've heard a lot of that as well. Well, I've participated in many of those conversations myself, and it's it's been a huge eye-opening experience as to the the depth of emotion, the depth of feeling that was brought to the forefront by the, the very tragic events of this summer. And I think it was made all the more challenging and all the more raw because this took place 
against the backdrop of an already stressful period. And great leaders have risen to the occasion and facilitated these types of really deep, vulnerable, emotional conversations. And I know, you know you, you've heard some talk about how it could be uncomfortable. Maybe that's why uh, some have avoided the topic historically. But the, the realization here has been that if you're a leader, that is simply unacceptable, that you owe it to your people, you owe it to the organization to get yourself up the learning curve, to understand the complexity of these issues, and to listen intently to the lived experiences of your people as a starting point to then actually entering into solution mode. Yeah. And Joe, you know, it wasn't just talking to your people. It was also speaking out publicly. And I don't think people fully recognize how big this change was. But if you look at the flood of public statements that came out from CEOs after the George Floyd killing, really, really emotional in many cases, this kind of thing just didn't happen in the past. You can go back to I mean, it's only been six years, Alan, since Ferguson, right? Most CEOs' approach to controversial social issues that didn't directly affect their bottom line was to hide under the desk. And Mm -hmm. suddenly, in the last few years, we've seen this outpouring of CEO activism. And, you know, some of the cynics say, oh, it's just words. Well, it is just words, but those words weren't there five years ago or 10 years ago or 15 years ago. Something big has changed there. We asked so many of our guests about this. Uh, But Ellen, we really need to call attention to our wonderful interview with Ursula Burns, the former CEO of Xerox. There is no question she was passionate. Well, she was fantastic. And she's banging the table. She's considering (laughs) quotas now. She She wants real numbers on boards. And it was, a, it was a lively conversation. And she gave a lot of energy to some of these topics. We are at a moment right now in this country that doesn't have to only do with George Floyd, doesn't have to only do with the Me Too movement, doesn't have to only do with the environment, doesn't have to only do with the lack of leadership in this country, doesn't have to only do with the pandemic. It's all of those things coming together. Five years from now, if we haven't, we're going to be in the middle of this mix still. You know what I mean? We're going to still be struggling because it's a lot to fix in a short amount of time. I would be surprised if we're not still in this debate trying to make progress. The other alternative is that we just go back to normal. Everybody goes back to home, whatever their home base was, and they shut up until the next big event. I don't think we're there anymore. Everything is changing. People sometimes ask, well, how do we know that this is going to drive real change? Could these simply be words that are responsive to a particular topic being at the the front of the news cycle right now? But what's really driving the words, what's driving all of us as corporate leaders to speak out is not only is it the right thing to do, but it's become a business imperative. Our people want to know that they work for an organization that's willing to visibly stand up for our values and speak out in favor of those societal changes that are near and dear to us. When you look at the marketplace, the customers of companies, the clients of companies are demanding that the organizations they do business with are aligned with their values. They're putting a premium on taking their business to organizations that are actually aligning around issues like diversity, equity, inclusion, climate with their own deeply held values. And that is what gives me confidence that this time is different, that the alignment of interests will drive real lasting change 
that makes a difference for people in society. We had several conversations over the course of the season with CEOs who stood up and spoke out on a variety of potentially controversial topics, not just this vital issue of social justice. Let's play a part of our conversation with Mark Benioff, the CEO of Salesforce. Mark, I want to roll back to 2015 when Indiana passed what they called a religious liberties law that was viewed as sanctioning discrimination against gay people. I've been covering business for four decades, and I can tell you for a fact that that was exactly the kind of issue that most Fortune 500 CEOs would have had nothing to say about. Controversial, politically, doesn't affect my bottom line. Why do I have to talk about it? But you did something different. You spoke out. You said that unless Indiana overturns that law, Salesforce is going to pull its people out of the state. That was new to me. That was a very big change. And I wondered what motivated you to get into that bruising fight? Well, it was definitely a turning point for us. We want to have a work environment that serves everybody and that is truly inclusive. And I think that the only way we're going to have growth, and especially at a time like this, you got to bring everybody in. You have to take everyone. When it comes to the LGBTQ community, of course, I live in San Francisco. I was born on Divisadero Street. I could not imagine in my wildest dreams that there could be such discrimination issued against LGBTQ. And, you know, it was really our employees who came to me, and I guess they knew that I was going to respond because they said, you have to not let this law stand. And in fact, we dealt with the governor of the state, Mike Pence at the time, and we negotiated with him and he changed the law. And that was very important. But that was a real turning point for business. You know, you had a whole slew of CEOs after that. Ryan Moynihan at Bank of America, do it in North Carolina. Ed Bastian in Delta on the gun issue, do it in Atlanta, Georgia. Something changed there in the way big company CEOs thought about how they run their business. Help us understand what that change was? Well, it was definitely a surprise. As I said, it was really a turning point. And what happened was, is when our employees said, you need to negotiate and and make a statement around this. Well, we did. We said, we cannot invest in a state that's discriminating against our LGBTQ employees. So it's driven by employees. Oh, absolutely. That's my job as the CEO is to be just listening and responding to my employees and, and my customers too, of course. But When that happened, the next thing was, is that the next day, I guess I turned on the television. I didn't even realize what what I had done. And hundreds of other customers and companies basically had followed us and said, no, that's how we feel as well. Everybody wanted to do that. They're just waiting for the first person to do it. So I want to look ahead for a bit here because Ellen and I found ourselves repeatedly in conversations with CEOs uh, predicting whether changes that had happened over the last nine months would be lasting. Would they continue? What is the world of business and the world of work going to look like? Right. And one of those conversations was with Ginny Rometty, the one-time CEO and now the executive chair of IBM. I think you can already see how people are going to emerge their businesses differently. And I see it in four areas. I think it will accelerate the move to the cloud. And it's not just because of the cloud, it's because people now saw what was brittle when they tried to go change something in this you know, pandemic. And so they're gonna say, wow, I gotta modernize and move to the cloud. 
I think the second thing it showed was, boy, I wish I'd had a lot more automation. So you're going to see a real focus on extreme automation. I think the third is very interesting on supply chains. You will see people building a lot of flexibility that they could be local or global in the supply chain. And the fourth thing is all around a new way of working. We are a very mobile workforce, but even we are looking at, hey, there are some things I would reconfigure permanently. And now you've got the added dimension of jobs here. Joe, what, which of these changes are permanent? I wish that it would have been something other than a pandemic that would have served as the catalyst to uh, rapidly accelerate the digitization of society. But there's a lot of good that's going to come out of this. When you look at the benefits to the real economy of driving technology deeper and deeper into the core strategy and operating model of just about every company, when you look at the way in which our eyes have been opened to new ways of working, is virtual work all of the time the answer? Of course not. But recognizing that people don't have to be co-located 100% of the time. And as a result, there will be greater geographic flexibility. There will be improvements relative to carbon footprint, climate. There will be improvements relative to the issues of inclusion and perhaps some of the travel demands, uh, discouraging some from taking on certain career tracks. I actually think there's huge benefits that will ultimately manifest themselves. And when you step back and look at this through an even broader lens, we've clearly demonstrated that this isn't about technology versus people. Tech plus people is much more effective than just tech or just people. And we've got to dispel some of the fears that somehow this is going to lead to mass unemployment or automating uh, all jobs out of existence. There are certainly complications during that shift, during that period of transition. And this goes back to the underlying philosophy around stakeholder capitalism that we, the business community, have an obligation to help make certain that this prosperity is inclusive that we're focused on upskilling, retraining, making certain that all communities participate equitably in a tech-driven future, but that ultimately this will lift the opportunities for a broad cross-section of society in ways that are incredibly beneficial. I think that's really what's made these 40 episodes so fascinating through this tumultuous time. Joe, thank you so much for taking the time to review the year with us. I would say to everybody listening that you should go back and listen to all 40 of them all over again, because the insights and lessons about business and the future of business are, are very profound. They are very profound. They're very real. And I think we're all going someplace very, very good. And we're doing it together. This episode of Leadership Next was produced by Wyatt Orm and Megan Arnold, edited by Nicole Vergala. Our theme is by Jason Snell. Executive producers are Mason Cohn and Megan Arnold. Leadership Next is a production of Fortune Media.
Leadership Next episodes are produced by Fortune's editorial team. The views and opinions expressed by podcast speakers and guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Deloitte or its personnel, nor does Deloitte advocate or endorse any individuals or entities featured on the episodes. 